Welcome to a special edition of Bound Off. We'll be releasing our next literary audio broadcast of short stories on April 15th. Today we're releasing two bonus podcasts that celebrate the life of poet Robert Dana, who died on February 6, 2010, at 80. In addition to this recording of his memorial service, we're releasing a separate recording of an hour-long reading of his poetry, recorded at the University of Iowa on March 27th. Robert Dana, former Cornell College English professor and Iowa's Poet Laureate from 2004 to 2008, died February 6, 2010, at Mercy Hospice in Iowa City. Dana, known by many friends and students as R.P., taught at Cornell for 40 years when he retired in 1994 as the college's Poet-in-Residence. He also served as a visiting writer at Stockholm University, Beijing University, and several American colleges and universities. Dana revived and served as editor-in-chief for the North American Review from 1964 through 1968, the first literary magazine in the U.S. The NAR had ceased operation in 1940. Dana also operated the Hillside Press at Cornell, publishing poetry chapbooks. Dana received his M.A. from the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop in 1954, where he studied with Robert Lowell and John Berryman. Dana won several awards, including two National Endowment for the Arts Fellowships. On the occasion of the Delmore Schwartz Award from New York University to an, quote, insufficiently recognized mature poet, the critic M.L. Rosenthal described Dana this way, a richly lyrical poet, very hard on himself and on the karma of our world, whose work this whole country would recognize itself in if it ever started to open books of poems. Dana's works include 11 full-length books of poetry since 1967. His last book of poems was issued posthumously this month, New and Selected Poems, 1955-2010, to Aninga Press. He also authored three works of literary nonfiction, Against the Grain, Interviews with Maverick American Publishers, University of Iowa Press, A Community of Writers, Paul Engel and the Iowa Writers' Workshop, University of Iowa Press, and a collection of essays issued posthumously this spring, Paris on the Flats, Versions of a Literary Life, University of Tampa Press. Robert Patrick Dana was born June 2, 1929, in Boston. Orphaned at age seven, he was a foster child in western Massachusetts through high school. After serving in the South Pacific at the end of World War II, he attended college on the GI Bill and moved to Iowa after a year at Holyoke Junior College. He received his B.A. from Drake University, where he studied with poet E.L. Mayo, and worked at the Des Moines Register. Dana is survived by his wife of 35 years, Peg Selen Dana, three children from his previous marriage, Lori, Arden, and Richard, Peg's parents, siblings, and nephews, and a legion of students, fellow writers, and readers. Contributions may be made in his honor to Cornell College, the Pancreatic Action Network, or Iowa City Mercy Hospice. This recording is a memorial celebration of Robert Dana. It was held Sunday, March 28, 2010, at 1.30 at King Chapel, Cornell College, Mount Vernon, Iowa. Good afternoon. I'm Les Garner, president of the college, Thank you for coming to be with us today. I will have a more formal welcome in a few minutes after music from Red Cedar Chamber Music.
I know that you join me in expressing thanks to John and Jan for that beautiful beginning to our service. I'm glad you're here, and I'm pleased to welcome you to this celebration of an expression of thanksgiving for the life of R.P. Dana, poet, teacher, mentor, and friend. I chose the words celebration and thanksgiving deliberately because they are indeed R.P.'s words, taken from a journal entry that Peg graciously shared with me a week or so ago. In 1986, Peg and R.P. were able to attend the memorial service for the sculptor Henry Moore at Westminster Cathedral in London. This is what R.P. wrote of the experience. This has been a glorious celebration of Moore's life, not a funeral. It is peculiarly correct, English sense of an artist's life, not a memorial, but a thanksgiving. And the sense we feel for more is less one of loss than of happy gratitude for his continued and permanent presence. So let it be with us this afternoon. R.P. Dana was the first Cornell faculty member that I met. I met him when he read at North Carolina Wesleyan College, where I was president. I was impressed then and have held him in high regard since. I was reminded recently of a major reason for that high regard when I was reading Nicholas Fox Weber's new book, The Bauhaus Group. Toward the end of the book, Weber talks about Joseph Albers, the artist, who mentored him in the same way that R.P. mentored many of us who are here today. And he wrote of Joseph Albers, quote, he invested the ordinary with poetry. Something similar could be said of R.P. He discovered poetry in things we often see as ordinary. He could see beauty and truth where we see the everyday and the routine. And then he had the spectacular gift of leading us to see that beauty in poetry stunning for its clarity and simplicity. It is that legacy that will sustain his presence in my life. It is that legacy which I celebrate and for which I give thanks today. Other words of remembrance will follow, but first, some of that marvelous poetry. class of 66. I was adding up the years, and it was 47 years ago, more or less, that I took R.P.'s creative writing class, <clears throat> in which uh, quite often we walked in thinking we had a masterpiece on our hands and a little less jaunty on the way out. <clears throat> we had a wonderful uh, ceremony for R.P. last night, and what occurred to me in the midst of it is that this was a man lived to be 80 years old, but never got old. The poem I'm going to read is from an early book called Some Versions of Silence. It is part of the book called Eleven Riddles on an Unfamiliar Theme, and this is the final riddle. It is whatever it is, binding us like time into time, mattering. This room, our universe, its darkness, our single star. My name is Dan Kellams. I first encountered Robert Dana in 1954, 56 years ago. It was his first year as a professor at Cornell, and I was a freshman. Mr. Dana 
taught English and journalism and oversaw the Cornelian and the Royal Purple. He was only 25 years old, a young poet up from hard times in Massachusetts and almost an alien in Iowa. He had that clipped Eastern accent, a sharp wit, the gift of laughter, and a surprising tenderness lurking just below that keen, critical intelligence. Now, I'm from Marion, which is just down the road. I never tasted pizza before I got to college. I was innocent, but I wasn't stupid. I asked Mr. Dana to be my advisor. I took every course he taught, and we worked together four years on Cornell publications. It was the start of a beautiful friendship. He showed his poems to me, and I was surprised to find pain and anger in them because he laughed so much, even at things I thought were serious. In one of those poems, My Glass Brother, the narrator describes a split in his personality caused by the death of his mother. In time, I learned more about Bob Dana's pain. He hardly knew his father. And Dana was not his father's surname, nor was it his mother, nor was it his mother's. She got it from someplace and gave it to him. Then she died from pneumonia and neglect, he wrote. He was seven years old. The boy was raised in a series of foster homes and then joined the Navy, where he did some serious growing up. I can't help but think of an oyster, which reacts to the pain in its gut by making a pearl. And that pearl, I imagine, is soothing to the creature that made it. And to me, every one of Robert Dana's poems has, at its heart, spoken or unspoken, that pain. Now, the poet grieved, but the man celebrated. <laughs> Bob Dana loved life, just relished it. And I'm sure you'll hear more about that today. At the end of our college days together, Mr. Dana, who had been at Cornell only four years, worked against the establishment to see that I was nominated for a fellowship to Columbia University in New York. I've always been grateful for what he did because, of course, going to New York changed my life. But I'm grateful not just for what the fellowship meant to me, but for the courage and the loyalty and the trust he showed in fighting the system on my behalf. We kept in touch after that. He came to New York on poetry business, and we had some wild escapades. Later, I began slipping back to Iowa more and more often, and I almost always visited Bob and Peg. For one thing, I considered their home the best place to eat west of the Hudson River. <laughs> Out of nearly six decades of knowing this wonderful man, I've chosen two Dana stories to tell you. A long time ago, as he was beginning to attract attention as a poet, we talked about characteristics that were important in a writer. Stamina, he said. Endurance. You've got to outlast them. Two days before he died, in one of his last conscious acts, Robert Dana got out of his hospice bed, sat in a chair, and took care of some matters involving his new book of essays. Two. A few years ago, Bob and Peg visited my wife and me at our house in Connecticut. Bob had been honored by his junior college 
and attended his high school reunion. It was the first time he had been back to his hometown in western Massachusetts in many, many years. He was awash with nostalgia. As he talked about the reunion, he began to think back over the sweep of his whole life. He decided to sum it up. He said, it's been, and then he paused. As always, he wanted to choose the right word. Fun, he said. It's been fun. I'm Eric Houts, class of 76. Uh, I think I probably slept through the public speaking class, so I'll read. I first met Robert Damon in 1972, the year I walked onto this campus an incoming freshman. I was then an average high school student and had, had not read much of anything. But I had a notion about write, wanting to write, and to write poetry in particular. I thought a Bachelor of Special Studies degree would be a good idea because it offered a means to create one's own curriculum and degree requirements under the supervision of a faculty advisor. Frankly, it seemed a good way to get a degree without a lot of need to attend class, take tests, and be graded. <laughs> I requested a professor, Dana, as advisor, having heard that Cornell had a poet on staff. Our first encounter went something like this. I told RP I wanted to be a poet. And after a long and poignant stare, his brow knitted and he replied, who have you read? I thought it an odd question, who read? not what or written. Well, I'd read Mason Williams, uh, the songwriter, and a few others, <laughs> and E.E. E. Cummings. In fact, I'd become fond of the lowercase personal pronoun and had begun using it. As you might imagine, my, my response evoked an even longer stare. <laughs> and what I recall is a deafening silence. R.P. went to a bookcase, pulled down two books, and handed them to me. Read these and make an appointment. The books were Philip Levine's They Feed They Lion and Heart's Needle by W.D. Snodgrass. I read them, or read the words on the pages, and made my appointment. My first honest steps at Cornell, awkward as they were, were taken on the creaky, floors of South Hall, when I said to R.P., seated quietly behind his desk, flanked by a wall of books, I don't know what this is, but I'd like to know how they do it. That was the first time I saw the uh, faint curl of his lips as he leaned toward me, like a chess master about to pronounce mate. R.P. began a discourse that would last over 35 years with his inimitable, well. <laughs> and so my plan to breeze through four years of college writing poetry and getting a degree along the way abruptly ended. I give you this personal story because I think it's typical of R.P. and one most, most students of R.P.'s would recognize the harsh, demanding, and sometimes downright scary professor had, it turns out, a big heart. In all the time we spent together at Cornell, I never saw R.P. discourage or disparage a student. Never did he turn away a student who asked for help or needed it, whether they knew they needed it or not. In the classroom, R.P. was quick to shine a light on a good choice of a single word in an essay or poem, even if the rest of it was crap. The most 
most modest intellectual breakthrough did not go unnoticed. A creative thought, however deep in left field it might have flown, would be chased after. There was something to be taught and learned from everything that presented itself in his class, and he could draw from memory precisely the authors, the books, the quotes, the stories, from sources we'd never heard of, to fashion meaning into something that had a handle on it. Make no mistake, Robert Dana was an excellent professor. But I always felt that what R.P. taught in the classroom traveled far beyond the walls of South Hall. <clears throat> he taught us how to read and gave some of us the tools with which one writes, and he showed us how they worked. He taught us the rules with the hope that we'd learn them well so that we could someday break them. R.P. taught us how to walk forward into the world and to keep on loving if we could. R.P.'s generosity and respectfulness weren't, ex weren't extended to us because we were students at his place of employment. They were extended to us because we were human beings walking in a difficult and dangerous world. He knew a lot about that world, its challenges, its harshness, and the loneliness one might find in it. With the exception of corporate officers, politicians, dishonest Ford mechanics, and cat haters, R.P. offered his experience and advice to anyone who wanted it. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest I speak for some of us here today and perhaps others who couldn't be here, but cross paths with RP in a meaningful way. RP didn't influence us so much as he became interwoven into the fabric of our lives. RP was my teacher and became my friend. As much as I miss his presence, his laugh, I have the power of his words to turn to and great lasting memories. Moreover, I have from him a poetics of living. As R.P. has said, a yearning of winds and strings. And I know that if I listen to it, be honest with it, trust it, its path leads to imagination and back to my own breath. I'm Dan Miller, class of 1986. I was all of 15 when I met Robert Dana in a fantastical locale called the Butterworth Mansion. Grand staircase, cosmic chandeliers, the occasion being the award ceremony for the Mississippi Valley Poetry Contest. R.P., the judge, had chosen my eccentric five-page poem as the grand prize winner after it was mistakenly added to a stack of adult entries. The, ra the rather bleak printed program benefited from the gleam of the Dana biography, books published, professorship held, hobbies, traveling, swimming. Swimming, my eyes stopped there. I had only heard of poets drowning one way or the other. <laughs> At a punch reception, amid a, amid a forest of feathered hats, I shook hands with this magic floating poet, and he spoke, he spoke, the goatee festooned chin dipping, the words gritty with gravity, let me know when you're ready to go to college. <laughs> Fast forward to newly renovated South Hall, RP's corner office on the first floor, local station stop for Didion, Bartholme, Paz, Kennedy, Borges, Shelley, Keats, Durrell, Bishop, Moore, Pound, Auden. 
I'm there too. I've made it. I'm in college. Amazingly, Professor Dana answered my letter in pencil, written three years after our meeting, with no contacts in between. And through a miraculous act of administrative mesmerism, arranged an M.L. King scholarship for a budding writer with a 1.8 grade point average. <laughs> Our relationship thrived on curious accidents and mysterious formalities. Never do I recall R.P. inquiring how my classwork was going. He seemed to have no worries about me, and thus I had fewer worries myself. I was truly on my own, allowed to feel full front the crisp, invigorating wind of an adventure. In that corner office, closed as a duck blind and mossed yellow with sticky notes, R.P. set under a shelf cliff of framed photographs, F. Scott Fitzgerald and a Princeton chorus line, Hemingway kicking a can. I say sat. Really, he was coiled and ready to strike out a word in a student's paper or strike up a conversation with you that you would never forget. The details, the gusto, the reach. He described visiting Frost at his Vermont farmhouse he alluded to the thorny theories of raging formalists to bore winters. He told of how he had run out of South Hall after getting his first New Yorker acceptance, envelope waving in the sun. During my years at Cornell, he received a contract from Harper and Rowe for starting out for the difficult world, and also published against the grain interviews with maverick American publishers. Through him, the dizzying expanse of a nation's literary scene entered a most quiet building and unlikely dreams careened from the corners of young minds. Fast forward to senior seminar, a class taught on a rotating basis by members of the English department. In 1986, my senior year, it was R.P.'s turn, and in less than four weeks, he guided us across an ocean of great critics, from Aristotle's supple notion of form to Poe's concept of supernal beauty and Ruskin's vision of literature burning with the gym-like flame. R.P. appeared each morning with a coffee thermos and a crumbling textbook dating to his great critics class in the 1950s. Back at the parked car rested the small tape recorder he was then using to capture poetry lines that buzzed through his mind as he drove up Highway 1 from the spectacular new house he and Peg had recently bought in Coralville. To teach the great critics while living at their mercy, that took bravery and discipline. I was impressed by how neutrally R.P. dealt with diverse theories, steering us around the crude tendency to think in terms of right and wrong, and promoting the notion that the best criticism was a creative product equal in importance to the greatest fiction or poetry. And how wonderful, and how weirdly appropriate, that this deep message, day after day, should be scented with the rich, kitcheny order of Costa Rican coffee he had been airmailed by a journalist friend. Fast forward to Greenwich Village, where I'm attending New York University writing workshop, thanks in part to R.P.'s rave recommendation. My roommate is Jeff Bruni, another Cornellian, who has made the scary leap to the East Coast in graduate school. Iowa is very far away. Then we receive big news. R.P. has won the Delmore Schwartz Award, given by NYU in recognition of mature achievement, and will soon appear right across the street at Bob's Library. Jeff and I arrange for a display of Dana books in the window of the university store. We come plenty early to the event so as to properly harass the guest of honor and his wife. Harper editor Ted Solitaroff is there, wearing old brown shoes. And Yates scholar M.L. Rosenthal, the daunting fuddle in a herringbone tweed. Dana family members have journeyed from Chicago and Boston. At the podium, R.P. never overdoes it. He does it right, spacing words like musical notes as he reads horses and watching the Nighthawks dive. The lines ring, but they do not exaggerate the dignity of their emotions, to paraphrase great critic Edmund Wilson. Wine served afterwards. Then, almost singing, our party strolls across geometric Escher tiles of the lobby and out to face the towering spotlit arch of Washington Square. Fast forward to the Brooklyn apartment, rented by my wife and I. Arriving home from work, I open the door to hear the tail end of the phone message being left by a clerk at the National Endowment for the Arts. I return the call and transferred to Cliff Becker, head of the literature program. He says I've been awarded a creative writing fellowship. The good news is debilitating. In the previous decade, I've earned exactly $15 from my writing obsession. 
I retain just enough mobility to dial Coral, though. Peg is there and says the perfect things, as Peg always does. She then relays news to RP down south on a reading tour. Within an hour, he phones Brooklyn. What do I do, I implore? Get the Cordon Rouge, he roars. Extra dry. Mons Cordon Rouge. <laughs> I get the extra dry Cordon Rouge. I drink the Cordon Rouge. But the taste cannot rival the flavor of that voice. It's tame, fizz, brio, by turns tender and ferocious. Fast forward to the Dana Deck, August 2008, nearly 30 years after the night I got lucky at the Butterworth Mansion. RP, with Peg's aid, has been battling through post-operation challenges and is making verifiable progress. Pork tenderloins are grilling on the hibachi precariously perched on the deck railing. Sweet smoke rises into green leaves of the ravine's tall trees. It's a sacred scent. I marvel at the duration of our connection in a tough world that often pulls people apart. I marvel at how our relationship has grown and spread like a gnarly, indomitable vine. The sky mumbles, approaching rain. Though still wearing the grillmaster's apron, our pea has switched roles. He grips an antically annotated edition of the short stories of Ernest Hemingway, reading aloud the wine of Wyoming, reading it start to finish, 18 pages starring Madame Fontaine and her husband, sellers of homemade wine to hunters. R.P. perfectly executes their French accents and comic intonations. Fontaine, il est crazy pour la vin. It's as if he has been practicing the dialogue since returning from Mayo. But the story is just another text he once taught and knows intimately. Everyone is laughing by page three. Peg, myself, and my wife, poet Ann Pearson Weiss. Rain starts softly, no matter. RP forges forward. Some of his best performances were private ones, or semi-private. The voice carried. Squirrels heard it too. Hemingway sentences, thunder, briquette hiss. Rain got harder, flipping leaves, wetting print, popping roof, stinging grill. Lid went on, we scurried inside, where RP, ensconced in the recliner, finished what he set out to do. Finished it. Lifting from each old paragraph something fresh, commanding respect. Quote, The soil of the hills was red. The sage grew in gray clumps. And as the road rose, we could see across the hills and away across the plain of the valley to the mountains. They were farther away now, and they looked more like Spain than ever. The road curved and climbed again, and ahead there were some grouse dusting the road. They flew as we came toward them, their wings beating fast, then sailing in long slants and lit on the hillside below. Professor Emeritus of Art at Cornell. Uh, Peg, Arden, Laurie, and Moose. That wonderful name which you once held, uh, uh, sported so well. Um, two stories. A photographer, I believe it is David Douglas Duncan, tells about the time he was walking on the beach and saw a small man walking ahead of him. The man was drawing in the wave-weighted sand with a large stick. Of course, every time the wave came, it erased the drawing, but the man seemed unconcerned and went down the beach continually drawing. Small man was Pablo Picasso. Duncan thought that this event showed that Picasso had so many drawings within him that he needed to waste some. When one talked to Bob, one soon became aware that our piece spoke in lines of beautiful poetry. Bob had so many poetic lines he needed to waste the surplus. E. E. Cummings tells about Renoir and Titian in their old age, crippled by arthritis, both strapped brushes to their stiffened hand so they could continue painting and drawing. Or as R.P. would have said, here I am again on my knees in the dirt, talking to the flowers, talking to the weeds, 
sweat pouring down my face like tears. There are worse ways to go. Bob was actively working on a new book of poetry to the last. Our new Irish vessel, RP, like W.B. Yeats in Auden's words, who disappeared in the dead of winter, lies only now, only now, emptied of his poetry. Before, Bob was life-affirming. Who can forget his infectious laugh while sitting in his office with a feather on the door removed, signifying that he had not flown the coop? As far as I'm concerned, Bob had this totemic relations with birds, don't you know, that was just, just amazing. He was generous and welcome. I very well remember when Sue and I first moved here, when we were walking around this unique town set on a bias and not knowing where we were, and suddenly this man, R.P., welcomed us into his house and we knew we had a lifelong friend. As a first P. Green faculty member, he graciously invited me to come, become an active participant in the new exciting project of the publication of the North American Review. Bob was principled on the important things, aesthetics, for example. He legitimately dropped out of a grant-seeking project for Islamic studies because of the god-awful government gobbledygook title, and Resource Affluent Nations. He just would not associate himself with such things. And while I could be candid with Bob and share the joy of bitching about politics in general, and campus politics in particular, he never let me get too haughty or righteous. All he would say to me is, now Huey, not not my, which is decidedly not my name. This implied admonishment, and it did the trick, for a little while at least. His advice was never off the mark. When our Cornell Art Department was hiring a potter sculptor, Bob was on the search committee. At one point he whispered, without any embellishments, hire that guy. It was the right decision, and the Cornell Art Department flourished largely because of the hire of a gifted teacher, Doug Hansen. In his work, he could be as lyrical about nature and love or as nitty-gritty about the horrors of the world. Often he would combine the two in ways that one is not supposed to, as in his poem, Mercy, perhaps. He could be mundane as some birds or as metaphysical in the same poems as in the riddle poems or in that wonderful mas masterpiece, Starting Out for the Difficult World, which brings into such familiar focus small towns. Bob had a feel for small towns, didn't he? One need only think of his later poem, Elegy for Hometown, which is partially in your program. And finally, to use his own words in writing on the death of JFK, quote, we watch the death and burial of something vital to ourselves. Thank you. He was our peace student many years ago, too. That showed me his professorial side. Having RP as a brother-in-law showed me his more personal side. The going to the beach showed my family and me the further RP. Peg and RP gave our family the gift of Topsail Island, North Carolina. Over a period of 15 years, six times we shared an oceanfront townhouse on a far less developed barrier island one that had been missile defense for so many years that development came much later than it had to other North Carolina coast locales. It was a low-key place to see RP's low-key self. From 1989, when our sons were 8 and 5, until 2004, when they were 23 and 20, we relished our week-long stays with Peg and RP at this very special place. We feasted on fabulous seafood, mostly cooked in our own kitchen. It was often shrimp, fresh off the shrimp boats chugging along in front of us from before daylight until afternoon, or blue crabs caught that day for our Maryland-style crab picking and claw pounding. Or it was other fresh catch from the nearby seafood vendor in Surf City, North Carolina. 
This is the recipe RP put together on a last night or near last night there, at least 15 years ago. He was using and savoring what we had left over from a previous crab feast and adding what was readily available at the shore, including shrimp from the shrimp lady just down the road. I asked him to write it out for us, but the recipe is more than the food combination on paper. It is RP in so many ways. Shrimp heads, crab claws. This is RP using what others might overlook as the savory aspect. This is RP with what he observed or heard or thought, collecting these poem seeds in his writer's notebook. Nuggets others cast about and aside, nuggets which he might use or improve, bend or straighten, elaborate or strip down, nuggets he'd craft together and apart later. Or this is the rich flavor of something a student might previously not have noticed, but for which RP had laid the foundation for discovery. This is the serendipitous finding of the poet whose work besides RP's would shape my sense of poetry and crafting words and image together. This is the book discovered in Cornell College's bookstore for an assignment in his class. One cup dry white wine, one tablespoon butter. This is RP seeing the wry aspects of what he encountered, savoring their dry, complex flavors and oiling the merging of these aspects together. Saute heads, etc., in saute pan, five minutes or so. Remove heads, etc., from stock. This is RP gathering the basic flavors of life, love, experience, irony, loss, setting, and novelty, and stewing the flavors together. This is not a stock which mashes its ingredients. This is a stock the complexity of which increases with the careful observer's eye and intellect and the gourmet cook's temperament. Add one half cup 1% milk to stock, simmer. Add one tablespoon finely chopped onion, one tablespoon of thyme, simmer two minutes. This is the artistic RP, adding the substance of his vision and the spices of philosophy, finely chopped. This is RP not cooking a poem to death, but simmering and bringing it to life. This is, um, this is RP simmering himself in the sun at the beach. This is the spice of RP's take on the world, on life, on his life, on education, on politics, on those about him. Add one pound small shrimp. Add one pound bay scallops. These will add liquid to the sauce. This is RP at home at the ocean, savoring the richness of its life and the bounty of its waters. This is RP watching dolphins offshore and pelicans flying above. This is RP relishing the ebb and flow of the water itself. This is RP in the liquid, body surfing to shore. Simmer until shrimp are pink and scallops are done. This is the RP who worked his poems until done, worked his life until done. He knew for both what done meant. Remove shrimp, scallops, and toss with linguine. This is RP mixing his complexly prepared ingredients in his poetry, in his teaching, in his love. Add crab meat to sauce, bring to boil on high, two or three minutes until crab is heated through. This is RP adding the elegant final touch to the moment, the poem, the sauce, the commentary. This is RP living in the present and heating the moment. Top pasta with crab and sauce, toss lightly, serve immediately. This is RP savoring al dente pasta, bread with a fine crust, 
the light toss of pasta sauce or salad dressing, the love of his life. This is our pea who could bring all these ingredients together and make a fine seafood pasta, a powerfully lean poem, and a full life which touched and taught us all. This is the RP whose imperfections were blended with perfections into a savory dish of vibrant humanity. This is the RP we loved. This is the RP I remember. I'm Donna Morrill, uh, and I'm just the program's fellow writer, but uh, there are many, many fellow writers here, and, and over the last 24 hours I've heard so many stories, so I feel like I'm just adding a few more with these remarks. My wife Lisa and I first met R.P. in 1997, when he stayed at our house in Tampa, as guest writers to our university did in those times. He arrived late in the day, and we ended up on the porch sipping bourbon and talking with unexpected intensity and ease. To our delight, this celebrated visitor bore none of the pretensions that sometimes accompany ambitious artists, those frail dragons. He even shared snapshots of his wife and grown children. Only later did I learn that he'd been uncertain about staying with us. Since the year before, as a judge of the first book contest, he had chosen another manuscript over mine. <laughs> before the night ended, however, uh, he and I touched briefly on that history, after, after many bourbons. And he showed the deepest respect for me and for our shared art by not attempting in the least to placate me. It was a double gift, that integrity since by then the manuscript he had chosen had been published, and I already knew it was the better book. Later, he would learn that yet another history hovered over that first night on the porch. I was born and raised in Des Moines, Iowa, and from my early, early teens onward had seen reviews and articles about him in the Des Moines Register. For many years, I thought of him simply as one of the famous poets over in Iowa City. This stuff seemed everywhere, I remember as a nearly penniless graduate student reading one of his early volumes, some versions of Silence, on multiple visits to Garing's Bookmark in Gainesville, Florida. So suddenly we were friends, and I would come to marvel at his passion for life and art, that green leaf he seemed to be made of, despite his age and his own difficult history. Now the poet and his poems are one. Though for all of us here, of course, they are one differently than for all who come hereafter. As we move through his pages, we hear him as we knew him, this excellent reader of his own work. Lisa says R.P. was a superior talker in his poems. And I agree, although it's hard to know for sure whether the art measured the talk or the reverse. There was a time when you could hear him telling stories in more or less the same three-beat line he masterfully measured out in those columnar poems from his middle and later books. I once heard him read the opening of Hemingway's In Another Country and thought I understood something about the source of that sound, but then maybe he was bringing it to Hemingway, or Hemingway brought it out in him. R.P. insisted that he sought a jazzy improvisational style, but he also said he agreed with many of the formalist principles that dominated the poetic fashion of his formative years as a writer. He just hadn't been assured of himself as those formalist writers seemed to be, he said. And he still wasn't, and liked it that way. To me, he's a poet of classical sensibility, if anything, even at his most veering and wacky. Classical in his formal rigor and sense of proportion, his learnedness worn lightly, his unwillingness to offer a poetic persona that glories in autobiographical detail at the expense of rendering what is common to our shared predicament. In a language enviably direct, he made songs against the churned earth policy of contemporary life, and he identified what is genuine in the broken, the vulgar, the orphaned, 
all that is vulnerable and trying to endure. He was a first-rate evoker of beaches and weather, fields and ferocity and splendor, a complex Arcadia of glorious summers beneath which lie the chipped winters, late springs, and falls of the self. Those who now will have to come to know him through his poems, including those strong occasional pieces written as a public duty late in life, will discover, I believe, a personable, eloquent companion, extraordinary in his reluctance to condescend to the ordinary, an exile making a home of his art. There is much to admire, love, and keep close. For instance, the superb villanelle going back is one of a late surge of traditional formal poems, and it goes on my list of the Dana Dozen. In the anthology pieces, you email to those who haven't been apprised of his work and must be worn over. I'd add to that list, entirely as a provocation to you all for further discussion, words for my wife, another beautiful formal piece, and the stone cutter, a really fine little poem. Starting out for the difficult world, black angel, unlucky, to a cockroach, Notre Dame de Paris, 1974, watching the night hawks dive, hello stranger, how to make a good green soup, summer, chimes, and the other, which is also a terrific poem. I don't include here early series pieces from the powers of Power of the Visible only because they gained most of their impact by accumulation. And I would put what he called, what I call his later scattered blossom poems, those from his last two collections, in another category altogether. Taking them as a single work, which I don't have really any permission to do, but I have anyway. Taking them as a single work, they remind me of, of Kobayashi Issa's late masterpiece, The Spring of My Life. To my mind, they make a great lyric essay, with R.P. coming at that hybrid genre from a different direction than as usual, perhaps writing by other means, some of the memoir he almost always resisted. And one of his memorable lines, well, of course, we heard many last night, we heard some today, but a few more. Three solitary clouds hid along. There is no everywhere. Every, each small life curves to its own shimmer, clothing the known like a bird or stone. The soul remembers in the sense. If you would love ugliness, then touch me. Take my anger to your lips, it will open prisons. All our ages ring inside us like the turnings of a tree, drawing up the waters of memory, splashing each season of leaves. I still want to give the gods some lip. It's been very difficult to realize he's gone from his life, because there he is, giving the lip. His gaze remains direct, a generous friend who honored our language as few have. He believed life cried out to be recorded, the mystery of the particular, he called it, and that this labor is unending, and as such, a blessing that sustains. He prized most of all the insight that, to use his own words, was gigantic intelligence masquerading as simplicity. That rare, sweet power is now what we have of him. And what we take forward into this moment, the one and only, that he knew means everything. probably know me, you may not recognize me, but I'm Lori Dana. And uh, first, I would like to thank all of you for attending this memorial celebration. It's a great comfort to our family.
great tribute to my father's role as a mentor and friend that you are all here. We have wonderful words from Dad's students and his literary colleagues, from Peg's family, who made Dad one of their own. However, there are only three of us among the many here who know what it was like to be R.P.'s kid. So I'd like to tell you a little bit about that. As most of you know, my dad had his own unique vocabulary, not just in his poetry, but in conversation as well. I was alternately referred to as stretch or skeezix. Arden was winky, and Rich, who weighed in at almost 10 pounds in 1962, was, of course, the moose. Any set of instructions was the poop sheet. And anything you couldn't remember the name of was, and still is, the duper, as many of my friends who have picked up the expression from me will assure you. When you lived with RP, certain basic skills were required making the perfect poached egg, catching a smoking fastball, flying a mean kite, and putting a military spit shine on your shoes come immediately to mind. And he was one of the only men I've ever known who was never without a clean, pressed handkerchief. He was a fabulous whistler and taught us to whistle too, all except Arden, who reminds me that she still can't whistle. You always knew when Dad was coming home from the hill because you could hear that cheery tune a couple blocks away. Uh, we lived right at the bottom of the hill here, directly below the chapel, and we could always hear him whistling when he was coming home from the office. From Dad, we acquired our love of literature, music, art, and travel. Who else but RP would teach you about Homer's Odyssey by turning it into a homemade board game? or create a highway western whose character names were amalgams of roadway exit signs. My brother remembers Bettendorf Leclerc, the French fur trapper, and the sheriff, Kellogg Sully. Musically, we were exposed from everything from Dvorak and Stravinsky to Gatsburg and Miles. Our home was filled with original artworks by his many creative colleagues and friends. I've always been grateful for the very early message that making your living by being an artist was a noble profession. As for travel, by the time I graduated high school, my siblings and I had been coast to coast three times by car. For me, that usually meant being the navigator, sitting in the front seat reading a map. Dad could pitch a tent, roll a sleeping bag, and pack a car trunk better than anyone I've ever known. And now so can we. The highlight of many a camping trip was Dad's dramatic recitation of Theodore Redke's Dirty Dinky in a tent lit only by a Coleman lantern. But of all these, my father's greatest gift to us was the way he lived. Robert Dana loved life. He found poetry in the everyday. The garden, the beach, the backyard bird feeder. He taught us that the amazing things in life are in us and around us. All we have to do is see them. He's left Arden, Richard, and me with some basic tenets that I suspect will sound familiar to all of you. Do what you love. Fight for what you believe. Find beauty in the simple things. And really live your life until the very end. Thanks, Dad.
I'm Rick Campbell, the um, publisher of Anglican Press. And uh, when, when we were in public at wherever we were, RP would <clears throat> inevitably introduce me as my publisher. And, I, and that's a cool thing to be. You know? And um, one of the things I was, I'm really just realized, in fact, I was really, I'm now very proud to have done was to um, bring RP to Florida where I could send him to Don and Lisa and, and people I loved. And when we would call it a tour, but really what I was doing was making sure if you didn't know RP, I had at least something to do with getting him down to you. And he was in um, Tallahassee reading at Florida State, and I was sitting in the back of the room listening, and <clears throat> he was reading, and, and I thought to myself that, you know, this is a, a greatest generation poet. He believes in truth and beauty and the power of poetry to save us, and, and our generation being kind of ironic and um, maybe suffering our little crisis of faith. I was going to turn to my friend and say, you know, how, how quaintly naive that is. And then I didn't say it because I realized that R.P. had made me believe in truth and beauty and the power of poetry to save us as well. So I'm going to read Chimes. Mid-August, evening, rain falling. Cold, bright silk where the streets front the house. Out back it lays and slicks the parched leaves of the trees, ragged hang of summer's end. I lean against the doorway of the poem, listening to the old patter. My cat Zeke lays himself out imperially, eleven pounds of gray smoke, with tufted ears and a curved plume of tail. Now a slight wind and the emperor of heaven's chimes and tone like distant bells, his court musician's four thousand year old pentatonic scale pealing in slow, clear ripples, occasionally a chord. Every day I live, I live forever. Thank you again for being part of this celebration and service of Thanksgiving. My hope is that our time here this afternoon will sustain R.P. Dana as a continuing presence in our lives. Now it's my pleasure to invite you to join family and friends in Cole Library across the pedestrian mall for a reception. Thank you again for being with us.